You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you where I get to talk to Lenore Zahn. Yes, Lenore Zahn, the star of Stage and Screen. You probably know her best as the voice of Rogue in X Men the Animated Series, but if you grew up in the 90s, then you most likely heard her voicing other characters in either cartoons that you were watching on network television or any of the many anime dubs that were going around at the time. So she has quite a prolific career, both as an actress and then she was a politician for a while. And we talked to her about all of that. And we talked to her about X-Men 97. Lenore was very generous with her time and I had a good time talking with her. And so I hope that you enjoy this episode. Now, since this is an interview, we're not going to have an outro. We'll just go to the music after we wrap up the interview. Now, with all that being said, first we're going to go to a promo for another fine podcast, and then we're going to get to the interview with Lenore Zahn. Hey, Dad. What's the Soul Forge podcast? The Soul Forge podcast is all about life, the universe, and everything. Is it good for kids? Oh, no. It's not good for kids. Is it geeky? Oh, it can be geeky, but it can also be serious. We talk about life sex, dating, and mental health, and so much more. Where can you find a Soulforge podcast? You can find it everywhere. iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, and the ESO Network. And we're back. And like I talked about at the top of the show, with me today is actress and politician Lenore Zahn. Lenore, welcome to the 42 cast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. How have things been for you as we navigate through quarantining and not quarantining and all that kind of stuff? Oh, wow. It's been quite the two years, almost three years for all of us, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, to be honest, uh, for the last couple of years, well, actually the last 12 years, I have been focused on being a politician. I've been an elected representative here in Canada, both in Nova Scotia, which is the province where I I grew up after my parents moved here from Australia. I did that for 10 years and then two years federally in Ottawa, in the, the nation's capital, as a federal member of parliament. And so I was a brand new member of parliament when the pandemic struck. (laughs) I'd only been in and sworn in for about four months. And then we were sent home from Ottawa to all of our respective uh, provinces and cities uh, across the country uh, because of the pandemic. So I spent, you know, the next two years basically locked in my house trying to be a, you know, representative of the people 
very difficult to get out and meet people, see people. Obviously, you can't shake hands. You can't kiss any babies. (laughs) Um, You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I did my very best uh, working really hard to try and find ways to be able to help people get money while they can't work. You know, like we came up with a thing called CERB, which was uh, a way of paying people uh, $500 a week so they could put food on their table and, you know, pay for their kids formula and also just keep them going throughout the pandemic if they didn't have a job and if they were self-employed, for instance, like artists. So it was things like that, trying to come up with ways to to navigate the pandemic, but thinking of it on the larger scale for people. How do you help people get through it? So it was a very intense time. And, uh, you know, and I and I, I I know that we did help a lot of people. And, you know, we're obviously we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, no, it's interesting how this thing affects people in so many different ways and talking to people in lots of different lives. You know, you're in a different country. I've talked to people in England, talked to people here and the responses are different. How people based on their careers and everything else, how it happens is different. And it's crazy here. Like, I don't know how the situation is in Canada right now, but here it's like everybody's acting like, oh, it's over. Yeah. They're wiping yeah. their hands and it's like, it, it's not over. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I know. I know. It's like we're in the sixth wave, as they call it right now. Like here, um, hospitalizations have gone up again. More people dying, uh, mainly people, you know, over 60, shall I say, but also others as well. But for the majority of people, the symptoms are more mild, but yeah, we're not through it. We're not through it yet. Plus, of course, the the health workers have been out because a lot of them were sick. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are trying to, you know, maintain a self distancing and masks if you feel like it. But on planes and trains and things like that, they still have to wear masks. Yeah, I know about the healthcare workers too. My mother is a nurse. Uh, so yeah, she's she's in the thick of this. Yeah, I feel sorry for them. My God, they've been through the mill. Mm-hmm. And I really, you know, I'm so grateful to them for everything they're they've done to try and keep everybody alive. And sometimes dealing with people who don't even want to admit that the that the uh the pandemic exists. Right. It's crazy, right. They yeah. could be dying of, of this COVID-19 and saying, what am I, what's wrong with me? Cause they don't believe that it's, they think it's a hoax. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's one of those things that just boggles my mind. Cause the evidence is all there. You don't even yeah, need to, exactly. to trust what you're being told on the TV. Cause you can just look around and see it. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like I say, I, it's something that I like to ask everybody because it is something that is still part of the public consciousness and everything, but now let's move on to talking more about you because <laughs> that's okay. why you're here. Did you know that as Rogue, I'm a social distancing champion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that fits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Rogue would Rogue would be fine under. Uh, yeah, under like it's like don't touch me. Yeah, right. for God's sake, don't touch me. <laughs> you want to end up in the hospital? <laughs> That's one of her lines, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, before we started recording, you were telling me that you were from Australia. So whereabouts in Australia were you? are you from? I'm from uh, Sydney, Australia, originally. And uh, I grew up there till I was eight, at which point in time, my parents, who were in their 20s and were teachers, decided that they wanted to see the world. And they'd heard how beautiful Canada was. So uh, we sailed over on a boat, the SS Canberra, took us about a month to get here, stopped off at different places along the way, like New Zealand and the Tongan Islands and uh, Hawaii, Mm. Vancouver, San Francisco. We sailed down to San Francisco and then on to Los Angeles, got out in Los Angeles, got to Disneyland, which was like amazing, you know, for a little eight year old kid. Um, And then we drove from there up through the Grand Canyon, the Badlands, Arizona, all the way up to Regina, Saskatchewan in Canada. And then we were there for about a year and it was so cold and we were not used to the cold. I got my tongue stuck to a car door because I thought, you know, the ice on it looked really pretty like lace. 
And I just thought, oh, that would be nice to eat. And I got my tongue stuck to the car door because it was so cold. <laughs> now, for anybody who lives in cold countries, they probably know you don't do that sort of thing. But what do you tell an eight-year-old kid from Australia? You know, like. <laughs> so how do they get it unstuck once it's stuck? Well, my mother had to, she went crying to the next door neighbor who came out, who was Polish. And she said, oh, you have to pour warm water on it to get the tongue unstuck from the handle. So there was lots of blood. There was blood, but she finally got it off. The other thing, my my mother wore a mini skirt to school. She was a teacher, as I said, she was it was in the late 60s and she wore a mini skirt to school. But while waiting for the bus in minus 30 degree weather, she realized suddenly why you don't wear mini skirts to school in the wintertime in Saskatchewan because her legs went blue. So so we, we after about a year, we moved away from there and we, we, we heard how lovely Nova Scotia was on the East Coast mm-hmm. near Massachusetts, Maine, around there. And uh, so we moved we moved here and I am now living here again. I left home when I became an actor and I traveled all around the world, moved across the states, lived in different cities in the states. And then uh, just about like 15 years ago, I I decided to buy a house here and move back home uh, to be with my family, be closer to the family. So that's why I'm here. Oh, wow. Very cool. Like, yeah, you've, you've lived a very adventurous life. It sounds yeah, like pretty, pretty adventurous. All right. Yeah. I, I love a good adventure. And I love traveling. Yeah. Just for my information, since I don't know Canada very well, but I know that when you're inland, things tend to get colder in the winter than when you're near the ocean. Like what is the difference between the kind of temperatures you'd see in Saskatchewan versus Nova Scotia? Well, it's true the prairie region, which is where Saskatchewan is, like in the middle, upper north of the country, they have very, very cold winters. And obviously, the farther north you go, the colder it gets, like Iqaluit and um, the, all up there, the way, way up north. But, you know, Yellowknife, all those places. But it does tend to get quite cold also by the ocean. So we're like on the Atlantic so the Atlantic Sea can get very cold. So you might have heard of Newfoundland, um, Newfoundland, like where the Titanic sank just off the coast of like Newfoundland and Halifax around there. I mean, there are icebergs, so it can get pretty cold here, but it's beautiful in the summer with the, the beaches and lobster. And, you know, it's it's just a really lovely if you've been to Massachusetts and Maine, it's it's very similar to that, but a little bit more wild and less tamed yeah my family I, i'm the odd duck i'm the only one who wasn't born in massachusetts so my, my whole family's from massachusetts so i know that area very well yeah i'm dying to i'm dying to get to massachusetts i am going to be doing um a comic con soon um and i'm hoping that i can get to travel through there that's what i would like to do yeah yeah that's that'd be very cool there's a lot to see in new england there's a lot of historical stuff yeah. especially in new england that you like know you see the civil war and stuff like that well yeah and also like all the you know early stuff for when colonial times and you know all that kind of stuff uh, more predominantly uh, in new england yeah so i guess uh, the place i'm going in, well i'm going to bangor maine mm. there's a comic con in bangor maine i'm going there later in the in the summer so i was thinking of maybe driving there and taking a trip to take a look at some of those places along the way. Oh, very nice. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get interested in becoming an actor? Well, I started when I was 15. I auditioned for high school musical, Guys and Dolls, the musical Guys and Dolls. My parents told me that I should probably not bother because I had never had any acting lessons or singing lessons and all the other girls probably had had that. And I'd had some dancing lessons, some ballet and things, but I hadn't ever acted or sang. But I just said, no, I think I've got just as much a chance as anybody else. And I'm going to just do it. And I did it. And they cast me as Adelaide, the harlot with the heart of gold, (laughs) who is one of the two female leads in that show. And basically, that was it. I was sold. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do, you know, for for my profession for the rest of my life. I hadn't thought of politics at that point in time, although I've always been very politically minded and 
like an active person when it comes to politics. But I just was I was in love with the arts and in love with performing. And so I started there. Then I became a professional at the age of 17 after I'd done uh, two summers of uh, professional shows, playing small roles at a local theater company called Neptune Theater in Halifax. And then I did the Charlottetown Festival in Prince Edward Island, which is another province in the Atlantic region here. And then I was discovered when I was 19, performing there at the Charlottetown Festival in Prince Edward Island, I was discovered to play Marilyn Monroe in a rock opera on the life of Marilyn Monroe. And uh, the composer writer had happened to be in the audience, saw me come out, do a number kind of like a based on Marlena Dietrich. I did a sort of Marlena Dietrich imitation of a Barbara Streisand song from Funny Girl. And the composer writer said to his wife, that's that's Marilyn. And uh, then they flew me out to the West Coast, to Edmonton, and I auditioned for a British director from London who had done Oliver on the West End in London and on Broadway. He was the original director of Oliver, the musical, and he cast me on the spot. And then I started, that was it. I was, my name was out there, um, kind of became a star overnight here in Canada and all kinds of movies and television offers started coming in. And that, that's how it all got, that's all how it all happened. And I kept doing that for 30 years. Wow. That is, that is a really nice story. I mean, <laughs> it's great that it worked out for you like that. But you told your parents, oh, like, this is the thing I want to do now. Were they worried about that? <laughs> Well, I, 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 I fooled them or shocked them or whatever the first time when they told me not to bother auditioning. So I think once they saw me on stage that first time, they said they didn't realize they had no idea that I had talent and they had no idea. They, they, they found it hard to believe that that was their daughter on stage. Like I just became this other character, this other person and with full of confidence and, you know. So they really, they did believe in me. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a difficult business. There are ups and downs. There, it, I, I always say life is like a roller coaster. You've just got to hang on. And, you know, in the industry as well, there are many different challenges, alcohol, drugs, partying, all of that. That is all out there. It's all available. And people throw it at you when you're successful. And, you know, in some ways you, you just have to look at, it. it's very sad what I'm seeing right now with the whole trial or the, the court case between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, because there are many of us who are talented and we have a capacity and a, a draw, we're drawn towards having an addictive personality and it can really destroy us and those of people that we love around us. And in some ways we can live in a, in a world of, of our own where people are, yes, people just, you know, they, they just want you to, they just want you to perform. They don't care what happens to you on the outside of the performance, as long as you give the performance. And sometimes you need some hard love and tough love to say, Hey man, you know, you're an alcoholic and a drug addict. So, you know, you need help. You need to clean up. Let's focus on that. Let's not worry about whether you're going to get a job again. Let's not worry about blaming somebody else for your own problems. Let's just accept responsibility and live life on life's terms. And let's get you straight because you have a disease and you're sick and you need help. So until the person is ready to reach out and say, yes, I am sick. I need help. I'm ready. I'll do whatever it takes. There's not much we can really do to help the person. And I found that I realized after um, many years that I was an alcoholic at the age of 36. And I was in Los Angeles and I said to myself, this is it. I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm, I have a career. I have a house. I have all these different things. But if I keep going the way I'm going, I will be dead by the time I'm 40. And so I went to my first actually AA meeting. Uh, in Los Angeles on Martin Luther King Boulevard. And uh, the, the folks in Alcoholics Anonymous there, uh, they, they loved me back to health. And they told me, you know, you don't know how to love yourself, girl, but we're going to love you. We love you. And we're going to love you until you learn how to love yourself. And they did. And that was 26 years ago this month. 
and I have never taken another drink. Um, and I'm really there, but for the grace of God, go I. I'm, I'm really um, grateful for that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's good that you were able to get the help that you needed for that. Yes. So what other interests do you have aside from acting? Well, acting and politics. Um, (laughs) I, that's pretty much it, to be honest. I, I'm just the arts, the arts, the arts, you know, like I love seeing shows. I love hearing incredible music. I'm working on an album as well right now. Um, I've recorded about 22 songs over the past year because I went through a major crisis where my beautiful little niece, who's only 17 years old, um, was she was uh, she had cancer and it was deemed inoperable. And it was uh, it's called osteosarcoma. It's a bone cancer and it's very very vicious and very deadly uh she had to have her leg amputated first and she was a gymnast here she was a sweet little gymnast uh she'd just gotten her driver's license and she had to have her leg amputated and we were all feeling like she was going to make it and she was working on walking with her prosthetic leg and everything and thinking about going back to school and what the future would hold. And then we found out it had metastasized to her lungs and she was given only till Christmas to live. That was less, not this past Christmas, but the one before. And so the whole family, we, we just, you know, we, we felt extremely worried and, grieving we started grieving before you know before it even happened but I found the best way for me to deal with my grief and my anxiety was to go in the studio and sing and so I went back to my roots because I started off singing in musicals so I went back to that and I and I started I picked songs that that touched me the way I was feeling the grief I was feeling or the, the joy or the hope or the, whatever I was feeling, I just put it into the music. Mm-hmm. And so I call it my music therapy, you know, instead of paying a therapist, I, I, I did it in music. I expressed myself in the music and now I'm working with somebody in the States there and uh, we're putting together the first of what will be three albums and probably going to come out in 2023 around the same time as uh, X-Men is going to start airing. Well, that's nice. I mean, that you were able to channel that into something positive, but yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your loss though, because that, that is a very rough thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a terrible year and yeah, she died last summer and uh, we still are grieving today and along with the pandemic and that, and then, Uh, Also, we had this awful, terrible thing happen here in Nova Scotia, which was we had a a mass shooting and it was the first we'd ever had here. And it was the largest one we've ever had in Canada. There were 22 people killed by one gunman uh, and he went on a rampage uh, across my writing, my, my political writing, my area that I represented. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just, none of us had ever experienced anything like that. And again, that was a stunningly awful and shocking and traumatic for all of us. So again, it was like the last two years have been extremely difficult. So when X-Men came a call in and contacted me to say, Hey, listen, we tracked you down in Nova Scotia and we'd just like to know, would you be willing to, you know, put on your suit and get back out there and become an X-Man again? I was like, hell yes. (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's good that there was something coming along to sort of brighten things up a bit uh, after all of that. Yeah. But yeah. So how did you get into uh, voice acting in the first place? Voice acting, well, uh, I would say, to be honest, if you're a singer, you have a very much a better chance at being a good voiceover actor because you know how to place your voice. You can do you can make your voice high or low or different colors. You know, you have a good ear, you have a good pitch. And so uh, when I was doing movies and television, mainly my agent in Toronto at one point 
said to me, hey, Lenore, there's this animation series that's that they're auditioning for. And I'd like you to audition it for it because I think you're perfect for this one part. They're looking for a woman with a low, husky, kind of sexy voice who can do a southern accent. And that's you, because I'd played a lot of roles like that on television and film, for instance. I played a lot of Californians and Floridians and Texans and stuff like this. And so I, I actually didn't bother auditioning for it right off the bat because I, I wasn't that interested in cartoons. I was more interested in movies and television. So anyway, I, I didn't make it to the first auditions, but then by the time they were ready for the callbacks, my agent called me again and said, Lenore, would you please get over and audition for this? I'm, they haven't found the right person because I know it's you. <laughs> so get over there and audition for it. So I was like, okay, okay, fine, I'll do that. So then I just went in, I looked at the picture of the, the woman, the, the character with her hand on her hip and the gloves and the sass. And I went, oh, yeah, I can do that. right? Mm -hmm. And I walked in the studio, put the headphones on. And I just read the, the lines that they'd given, which was, my daddy liked to kill himself when he found out I was a mutant. <laughs> you know, I remember when I was 13, I had me a boyfriend, had me a boyfriend till I kissed him. Poor boy went into a coma for three days. That's always been one of my favorite bits because it's so it's so funny. And then in the, the show, they actually have her like lifting a rock as she says that. So before you know she can drain powers, it seems it seems like, oh, she kissed him so hard and knocked him yes. out. Right. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, that's all I did. And then I heard the producers in Los Angeles on the other end of the headphones going, oh, my God, where did she come from? Don't let her leave. That's Rogue. That's the voice we've been waiting for. <laughs> and that, that's kind of how it all happened. Oh, very cool. So X-Men was your first animation role? It was actually, um, it was my second one. I think I'd done one called um, Tooth Fairy. Dottie the Tooth Fairy. I played for um, a, a company in Ottawa at one point in time. And I don't even remember how I got that. I don't re really remember at all. But the X-Men one was my first big animation series. Okay. Yeah, because I remember later on after X-Men, I got into anime a little bit. And I remember saying, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. that's Rogue. You know, watching right. like Magic Knight Ray Earth. And... Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like, hey, Caldeo yes. sounds just like Rogue. Yes. Without the accent. <laughs> right, exactly. But I but I yeah, I can recognize your voice. And yeah. you know, I've I've heard you in other things, you know, going through the years sure. and stuff. And so it's yeah. just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it kind of like led to a whole lot of other shows. And the other thing was um, after I'd finished X-Men, because we did like five seasons of it, mm -hmm. I did a lot of voice stuff in Toronto at that time. And then I went out to Los Angeles. And I decided that I wanted to take classes in voice because I wanted to learn how to do even more roles, more than just the ones that I was comfortable with, with the, my voice, the way it is. I wanted to be able to learn how to pitch my voice to become like little boys and other types of characters. And so I took a, a great course with Sue Blue, who was a casting director and teacher at the time and uh, learn how to do that. And then that opened up a whole new slew of uh, adventures for me in the animation world, since I, I could then really go for different types of roles instead of just the ones that I'd always been comfortable doing. So I, I stretched my comfort zone. What do you enjoy about, because you said like the arts, that's your thing. Like, what do you enjoy about acting? Well, I think probably it's getting into the head space of another character of another person trying to figure out who are they what makes them tick why are they the way they are and then representing them in such a way that an audience can relate to them whether they like them or not and they can it can push people's emotional buttons to feel a wide range of emotions that's something that I really love to do. And, you know, it's funny, but I, I was thinking the other day when I was a very little girl and I, living in Australia, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother who lived out in the, the bush, out in, in the bush outside of Sydney. 
And uh, she had this grandfather clock, this old grandfather clock. And my favorite game as a little girl, I remember, was getting my grandmother to sit on the couch and wait for me. And I would hide behind the grandfather clock. So something about time, you know, I'd hide behind that. And then every time I came out from behind it, I was a different person. And she had to guess who I was. It could be a movie star or it could be someone in the family or a neighbor or whatever. But it was like that was my game. And as an only child, it was like I had to constantly make up games for myself. And, I, and I'm thinking now I'm thinking, OK, that's like a little actor in the making. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Do you feel like there are any advantages to doing just voiceover work versus being in a stage or in front of a television camera? Or, you know, like, well, how do you feel about the difference between doing the voiceover work and the, and the live work? I love them all. They all have their different challenges. Uh, obviously, when you're doing voiceovers, you don't have to worry about memorizing the lines. They're written. You can read them and you just do them. Also, you don't have to worry about what you look like. You could go in wearing a scruffy T-shirt and your hair all messed up if you chose to and nobody would care. Or you can also, <clears throat> you know, just focus on your imagination and your voice and that is a really fun thing to do to try and bring something to life, bring words off a page just with your voice as the instrument uh, without people being able to see your expressions. That is also, it's a really great challenge. And it's, to me, it's just so much fun. When it comes to doing stage work, it's amazing. You can't replace like to be on stage and be having an audience eating from your hand when you're working with the audience in tandem and your energy is going out to them and they're feeding you with their energy. It's like this incredible exchange and it's very powerful. Theater started long ago with Greek in, in Greece and places like this with, uh, you know, with oracles who used to divine the future and have people coming to hear the oracles. And it was a very spiritual thing. Right. And so that feeling is still there when you're when you're on stage and the camaraderie. And obviously, if you mess up, you have to try and do it in a way nobody's going to be able to tell. <laughs> you keep <laughs> on going. That's a big challenge. Mm -hmm. Got to remember all your lines. You got to know where you're going. You know, it, it's, it's a lot harder that way, but it's, again, very much fun and exciting. And then film is always great because, you know, you can do it again. <laughs> you know, you can do the take again. You don't have to memorize the whole script. You can just memorize the scenes that you're going to do. Although time is money. So you're also aware that the clock is ticking and the quicker you can get it and the less takes you can get it in, the better for all. I uh, got to keep in mind the crew is there, too. You know, nobody wants to have long, drawn out nights. And and one of the things that I learned from being in the stage from the stage in the very beginning is we're all in this together. Like there are no, there are no small parts there, you know, they're only small people. No, you know, we, we, we are, we are all in this together. I did law and order with Jerry Orbach in New York there before, before he died, shortly before he died. And he was such a kind man. And I just remember him always taking time to talk to, you know, the people that were cleaning up the people that were doing this or that, or, and like he, he treated everybody the same. And I know that's because he came from a theater background. He was a gentleman and it showed. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So when you were playing Rogue uh, and you're, you're doing the X-Men show, what was the way that they recorded it? Were you all together in the studio at the same time? Or was it like you would come in, do your lines, and then somebody else would you know, come in and do their lines? Yeah, no. In the very beginning, we were all together. They did it like a radio play. Uh, and at the time in Canada, we were doing a lot of radio dramas. They were very popular. And so a lot of us, well, we were very trained actors who were dramatic actors, really. We weren't really voice people. And that, that's what the, uh, the producers were looking for. They didn't want people who could just do funny little voices or anything like that. They wanted real actors who could give it some gravitas. And they picked really well. So we were all in the room together and able to hear each other, see each other and react to each other. And we did it that way for the first 
few years, I believe. And then as time went on, I mean, we all got different jobs and sometimes you're in LA and you can't be in Toronto or whatever. And so then I would sometimes then have my voice alone and they wanted us all there together as much as possible. And, and it worked really well. Now I'm doing it in the studio myself. We all are. I mean, COVID changed things and people have gotten used to that now. And to be honest, I know that show so well, and I know my character so well, I can imagine and hear everything and see everything anyway. <laughs> I don't really need to, to have it right in front of me because I can imagine it. Like I, I like that little kid that went in behind the grandfather clock and came back out like it's all happening <laughs> to me. That wasn't a grandfather clock. That was like a time machine, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, that's like me, even as a viewer, though, when I would read X-Men comics and Rogue would be speaking, right. I would hear your voice, you know, like as the, <laughs> as the character. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I understand about understanding the character because it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, that, that's probably how it would sound. Is, you know, she right, was saying right. it, yeah. Did you develop any friendships with uh, any of the, the other cast members since you were doing it all together? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We were all very close. And uh, a number of us would go out afterwards. We'd do the studio gig and then we'd go out. There was a little bar upstairs and outside from where we were. And it was oftentimes in the summer we were we were doing it. So we could sit in the sun and have a beer or whatever and just chat for, for a few hours before we all went home. But, you know, Norm was one of them who played Cyclops and he was really sweet. And, uh, you know, he, he passed last year and we were all really saddened by that. But the rest of us are still <laughs> we're still here. And we had some great rap parties at the end of each season. And uh, at one point, we, we were able to order jackets, you know, X-Men jackets with our character's name on them and stuff. I still have mine. I know Cal has his. He wears it all the time. Nice. <laughs> but uh, no, it was it was a great time. So that that was that took from yeah 92 to 96. And then I kind of just forgot about it. I think we all did. Like We had no idea that it became such a big hit. I, I, if you ever interview others from the show, you'll, they'll tell you the same thing. We had no idea what a big hit it was. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, that was going to be one of the things I asked you about, like, is like, wh at what point did you realize it was a big hit, but you didn't even realize while you were doing it that it had been a big you hit? Know, we only realized, like, two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. You know, it was uh, just before the pandemic, we were invited out to the Los Angeles Comic-Con, mm -hmm. the LA Comic-Con. And we got there and there were like 100,000 fans there. And we did this panel, this big panel in this great big huge hall. And all these people were like screaming and crying and they just loved us. And, and then when they were coming up to get autographs and stuff, they were telling us how we changed their lives. And they were when they were young, they felt really awkward and they didn't have very many friends or they felt different or they were LGBTQ and they didn't know it, or they were on the autism spectrum. And, you know, all these stories that just started coming out of people and they were really moved and crying. I mean, about how, how much our show had meant to them and, and how it had helped them through some very, very difficult times. And that's when we all just, we got shivers. We just, we talked about it. We'd go out for dinner afterwards for the few days we were in the Comic-Con and we were like, I, I, we had no idea. And I'll tell you, the, um, the writers tell us that uh, Eric and Julia say that at, at Fox at the time, they started getting tons of fan mail. They said there was so much fan mail for us that it would take up whole hallways. It, it had baskets and baskets piled on top of it, right up to the ceiling, they said going down all the length of one hallway and all the length down another hallway. And none of us ever got them. They never oh. passed them on. Yeah, that's crazy. Because yeah, I've heard the stories about the fan mail. So I assume yeah. the ones that were directed at specific characters or whatever would get to you uh, so that you nope. would read. <laughs> nope. Wow. We had no idea. So, you know, if anybody was somebody who wrote to us back then, we're really sorry. But we did not receive them. And uh, we are now that we are in action again, you can find us through our agents and online and, and write to us again. And we're happy to respond. <laughs>
Oh man, well yeah, I'm sorry to hear that that you didn't know yeah. at the time because that was the thing that X-Men exploded. Yeah. Yeah. I know that Eric and Julia talk about the fact that, you know, they thought, yeah, it's just gonna be like a one season thing and it's gonna right, be right. done. And you know, they but they they at least knew that hey, the fact that they're getting renewed meant that they were <laughs> you know, right. that things are going pretty well. I mean, to be honest, we never even met. Like we we never met till two years ago either. Eric and Julia and I and um Larry Houston, because he was in Houston, he was in he was in L.A. Well, they were all in L.A. and we were in Toronto. So we only really met uh, the the director who was Canadian and a couple of the producers who came down from L.A. But that was it. So it's really nice to meet them now and be going to these comic cons together and hanging out and hearing their stories, too, and putting together the pieces well, when you got the scripts, did you feel like, hey, this is a little bit different than cartoon, you know, like nor- normally cartoons are, like the writings, yeah. like a little more? Definitely. I mean, to, I, I've always been into um, mythology. Like one of the stuff, one of the things that I've always loved is history and mythology and fairy tales and you know Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, all of these kinds of things. I've loved them. Um, And so when I started reading the X-Men scripts, I thought, you know, this is like universal. These stories are universal. You can see the myths in these that are based, you know, are based on other myths from other cultures. And some oftentimes you find that the same myths are throughout all cultures. So I think that's what gives it the legs to to because it's it's universal. It's deep. There's so much to it. And just also the, the the messages of, you know, love and brotherhood and sisterhood and not being at each other's throats, but trying to find the, our similarities as opposed to our differences. Yeah, because I remember, I was 12 when it came out and I was getting out of cartoons. You know, I, I, I was like, uh-huh. ah, cartoons, it's for little kids, you know, but X-Men came out and I was like, wow, this doesn't it's not like a cartoon you know it's animated but it's not like other cartoons and that's exactly yeah i was all in for (laughs) x-men yeah like i had a lot of 30 year olds that would tell me uh you know i i love to watch this show with my nieces and nephews or whatever you know or parents that like to watch it with their kids and now i'm hearing the same thing again that parents are introducing it to their kids because they want them to be ready for when x-men 97 comes out yeah, no, it, I mean, yeah, because there are themes in there that are universal and timeless. And so that's yeah. that's the thing. It's like it's good storytelling. Yes, really good storytelling. So you mentioned that your agent had told you that, hey, you know, Rogue is perfect for you. But what do you personally like about Rogue? Oh, I like Rogue's determination and her grit and her ethical, her ethics. She really wants to do the right thing. She also, she wants to try and help save the world, but she's not a pussy. (laughs) She will not be a doormat and she does not suffer fools kindly. And I can relate to all of the above. She has a vulnerability, which is that She's almost she's afraid of intimacy because she knows that if she gets too close to someone, she could kill them. And that's that's a big responsibility to bear. I mean, she almost killed her first boyfriend, Cody, when she kissed him, when they kissed. So you can imagine something like that would be traumatic to a person. It's like it's like someone who has a peanut butter allergy. And then if they kiss someone or if someone who eats peanut butter and kisses somebody with that, that really serious, deadly peanut butter allergy, they can kill them. It's like, imagine if you did that and someone died, you would feel so guilty and you'd be afraid forever to get close to someone. Well, she has, that's her Achilles heel. And she's tried to get rid of it on a couple of occasions, but then she always comes back to, well, no, you know, you, you can't get, you can't change who you are. You know, it's, you know, you got to start to accept and love who you are. And that is a great message for many people that it's okay to be different. And yeah, it may not be exactly what you were wishing for or hoping for, but you know, you are who you are and therefore learn how to love yourself. Kind of like when I was an alcoholic, active alcoholic and the, the people in the AA said, hey, you don't know how to learn. You don't know how to love yourself, but we're going to love you until you learn how to love yourself. And the X-Men are like that. 
they're like, we're a family, we belong, you belong with us. And we're going to work with you. And together we're going to, we're going to make you feel like we are, you're a whole, you are whole and not, you're not missing something. So I love her for all of those things. She's not an, she's not an easy character. She's a complicated character. She has many different colors. And I love that about her. Yeah. I got to say though, you know, one of the big things for the fans is the, will they, won't they romance of Gambit and Rogue and how can that even work and how, you know, like what is going to happen with those two and what, what did you think about that aspect, you know, of the character? I love it. When it's easy, there's no dramatic, there's no dramatic, you know, any of the great love affairs, you know, there's always some kind of a challenge to overcome and they certainly have theirs. Remy and and Rogue, they have their challenges, but I I love I love the playfulness between us, and I love that we're still getting to know each other. That there's still stuff in our past that we don't know, we haven't shared with each other. So there is more to come. You know, there is a lot more to come in the upcoming episodes. Do you think that if they were able to move forward, if they were able to find a way for Rogue to touch him, that that would be a good thing? Or do you think it's better that it's always just like a potential, it's not something that ever actually happens? Well, maybe by episode five, no, no, (laughs) maybe by, by season five, they could get married and then they could have a spinoff series, just Rogue and Remy. How would that be? (laughs) <laughs> hey, I'm all for it. More more X-Men content is a good thing. Tell the fans, get it out there. Yeah, Rogue and Remy. We want a Rogue and Remy spin-off. <laughs> so when the series came to an end, how did you feel about that? You know, because it was obviously a final episode, the way it was written and everything. So was that a sad time or were you just wait like, oh well, now I can move on to my next job? No, we were sad. We were definitely sad. And the thing is, when you're doing animation, it doesn't take up all your time anyway. So we were we were doing other shows and other gigs in between. It was just one of the shows we were we were doing. So I know we were sad when it ended, but we also felt like it ended on a really good note. We felt that it was it was well written and it was primed that if they ever want to continue or bring it back, they could. Of course, we had no idea it might be like. 30 years before that happened. <laughs> it's so funny because I was hearing rumors, you know, for, for the last few years about this. And I was like, they're never going to break. You know, Disney's going right. to want to do their own version of the X-Men now that they've bought Fox. They're going to be like, no, nah, we want to do our own thing, our own version. And then right. it's like, oh, no, they're continuing the actual show from the 90s. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> I know, right? Pretty, pretty amazing. All right. We were all uh, stunned and pleased. And, and I love working with, uh, with both Marvel and Disney and the producers are, are fantastic. They're really committed to the stories. They're really committed to the, the vision and they, they know their stuff. They, they really know their stuff and they are fans. So that's, that's amazing. We needed that. Yeah, no, I like I say, I, I was I was floored by that news also because I just did not think that it would ever happen. Yeah, I love the scripts; they're fantastic. Oh well, that's good to hear. That's yeah, yeah that's that's very cool. I can't wait to, to see what's coming. Get a hold of them, and I can't stop reading it. That's a good sign. I've read a lot of scripts, and sometimes you just start reading it, and you're like, oh god, and you put it down, and you're like, do I have to read this? It's like, okay, I'll read it. With this case, no, no, no. I, I pick it up. I start reading. I'm like, I can't stop till I'm till it's over. That's good. What prompted you to move into politics? I've always been interested in how government works and what type of governmental systems work best to try and help people the most and make people happy and healthy and have good, long, productive and satisfied lives. So when I was traveling in between all the shows I was doing, I was always going to different countries and staying for you know a, a few months or several months. 
learning the language, learning about the government, learning about the spirituality, learning about the, the culture, the food, all of that, what makes that country tick. And so when I came back to Nova Scotia in um, like about 15 years ago, I decided that I wanted to help the, my community, uh, like save this beautiful old building that was going to be possibly torn down. So I started a campaign to raise money to do a, a feasibility study that showed if we instead repurposed this beautiful old heritage building, that it would re reinvigorate the downtown of our small town of Truro. And, you know, there's so many things that you could do with it. And in the end, we turned it into a library with a skating rink out front and it lights up at night and there's music and people come down. I mean, it, it's beautiful. So that was my first foray and some folks saw me and watched me doing that and said, Hey, Lenore, you'd be a great politician. You know, you'd be great for the community and for the, 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 the province and the country. Would you run for politics? So I thought, well, what have I got to lose? Cause I was going to be here anyway. And so I ran and in the very first instance, just after it was announced that I was going to be running one of the opposition parties sent a picture of me topless from the L word, a TV series I had done where I'd had a shower scene in this series. And they sent a picture of me from that to the six o'clock news, the local six o'clock news saying, oh, do you really want this woman to be representing the people, you know? And it was ridiculous. I'm an actress. I've done a million different things. I've won awards. It was a scene in a TV series that I'd done several years ago. I mean, who cares? And that's what the people said. People just went ballistic and they were like, what the hell do you mean by doing this? Like, she's an actress. This is her job. Even the little old grandmothers that were being interviewed were like, she's an actress. Get over it. This is the 21st century, you know. And uh, anyway, I ended up winning in a landslide. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was my, my first election. And then I ended up winning three more elections after that. So four elections in a row. So it was 12 years in all. And I also cared desperately about the environment and climate change and, uh, and indigenous issues, social justice issues, early childhood development issues, education, all of these kinds of things. And so I found myself having many different uh, portfolios, uh, 11 in total when I was in the provincial government. And then the two years in, in federal office, I introduced a bill called uh, a national strategy to address environmental racism, which is about the inordinate amount of toxic waste sites, dumps, landfills, and corporate polluters that are placed on or beside racialized communities. So communities of color, black communities, indigenous communities, things like this, like really, to be honest, it's right across North America. But here being in the Canadian government, I could only do it for Canada. So I introduced it. And that bill is actually going to be coming back next week to the parliament in Ottawa. And I'm flying to Ottawa to be there to be present when it comes up for second reading, which is like one of the processes to get it, move it through the house to get it passed. So that's pretty exciting as well. So you see, I, I have a, many different interests. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So are you still serving in the government as you're also doing the X-Men work? No, in my fifth, my fifth election, I lost that one. So I'm now just doing my acting. I, I actually ended up getting a movie right after I lost that election. So <laughs> I shot a movie for the month of March. It's called The Madones. And it will be coming out next year as well. And so keep an eye out for it. I play Gladys Madone, who's quite a character. And then I'm doing the X-Men. But my bill, which I started two years ago, has been reintroduced by a colleague who is still in the House, in, in the Parliament. And so she's reintroduced the bill. And now it's going to second reading next week. 
And so she wants me to be there for that and to recognize me, you know, from the floor and stuff like that. And the prime minister is supporting it. And, uh, you know, so it's all, and the environment minister, I have a meeting with the environment minister. So it's pretty exciting. You know, I like to be able to keep myself, you know, rolling along on all barrels, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's nice. Cause I mean, you know, the work that you've done is still, you know, uh, paying off, you know, you're still yeah. having things going forward. So that's, that is very nice. What yeah. is the Madones about? The Madones? Oh, it's a movie about a family of women, three sisters called the Madones, who once had a band called the Madones, which was very popular and they had a hit song and stuff, but then they parted ways and you don't know why they parted ways. But when my character, the older sister, comes back to the little town driving a gold jag and wearing a sable hat and, a, you know, a leopard skin coat, kind of fake faux leopard skin coat, <laughs> all the, the hell breaks loose. And then you start to wonder, you start to put the two and two together as to what happened and why. And, it's funny. It's sad. It's also about mental health issues and mental illness and how do we live with those and how do we cope with those and, you know, and, and how do we deal with it? So, and how do we, how do we really love one another in spite of our terrible differences sometimes, even as a family? So oh, it's nice. pretty, yeah, it'll be pretty beautiful actually. So yeah, we're, you're coming back to rogue, like we've mentioned. Do you feel like since, you know, your life, you've had other things happen to you, you know, you've been a politician, you've had other work that you've done. Do you feel like that that'll inform your choices as in playing Rogue, you know, yes. moving forward? Or do you think that you can go exactly back to, you know, what you were doing with Rogue in, in the 90s? Well, both. I, I was a little bit nervous before I went in the studio the first night. Cause I was like, Oh my God, do I still have it? Like, can I still do it? And then, and then within like three seconds of saying the lines, I was like, yeah, no, there she is. <laughs> She's there. That's her, you know? And, and so it was, it was the same. She was right back to where she was, but without giving away any plot lines, rogue is going to go through a lot of different things in the next season. And I can definitely use, and I have used what I've been through the last two years has definitely informed my ability to go to those emotional places and those depths and be able to put it into the work. Well, that's definitely something for us all to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you said that you're just doing your lines, right? You're not actually in the studio with Cal and, and the other no. people that are coming. Oh, yeah. Okay. But you yeah. see them at conventions, or you have seen them at conventions before. Yes. Like, do, do you have you had a chance of talking, you know, about it? You know, the fact that oh, now it's coming back, and and you know, do you guys have discussions about that, and, and how it, you know great that is to to do the yeah. show again? We had one panel, uh, like an online panel, after the announcement, uh, right after the announcement. Actually, the panel had been booked for some time. I think it was for Galaxy Con or something. And we, so we were able to talk about it there, like to each other, you know, in the, in our little squares. And I also saw, uh, I saw Chris Potter at a, a comic con that we were both invited to. That was for sick kids for Easter seals, mm. kids with disabilities. And so we were able to chat that just the two of us, which was fun. We hadn't seen each other in again, like 30 years or something like that. So that was great. But no, we haven't really been able to get together, all of us in person yet because of COVID, right? So I'm, I'm looking forward to the time when we can do that. I, I have a few Comic-Cons booked up that I'm going to individually. And then we have one, I think, in November that we're going to be doing together. So oh, cool. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's really nice. And I, I've heard at least that some of the actors who aren't coming back to do their own roles might be part of the series doing other roles also. So it'll be great to hear those voices again. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> um, but I'm glad I'm playing Rogue. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing that really excited me too, is not only is the show coming back and taking up where it left off, but it's like, oh, you know, we're getting some of the actors back playing yeah. the exact yeah. same roles. And so that's really nice. Yeah. So it'll yeah. feel more authentic to me. That yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the fans will be pleased. 
Is there anything, because we talked about your life informing how you play Rogue, but is there anything from Rogue that you felt like you've taken into your own life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be honest, when you're living with and loving sick children, children who are, you know, have cancer or other debilitating illnesses, you, re- you, you, we, we oftentimes say to them, you know, like you can, you know, like you, you can, you know, focus on your inner superhero, right? Your own inner superhero to come out. But I'm telling you, when I look at the kids and their families and what the families go through to help these kids and the kids go through, they are the superheroes. Mm. They are the superheroes and they have informed me. So um, Rogue, you know, for all of her incredible essences, I see all of that in these kids who are just fighting even to take one more breath one more step, one more thought, and the families who love them. And so I feel like I'm doing it for them now, too. I'm doing it for for them, for my niece, who sadly has passed, but for all the others, you know, and if, if we can give each other some some strength to all of us walk along the path and be together and su- supporting each other, then life will only be better and the world will be a better place. And that's what the X-Men are all about, too. Yeah, no, that's very well said. Yeah, I mean, that's that's another part of the X-Men that's so interesting is that it's a show that is a moral show without being, uh, how do I say this? There were a lot of shows when I was younger that would beat you over the head and were very obviously saying, this is a show that is teaching you a lesson. Where it wasn't right. like, the story didn't come, you know, it wasn't a good story. It was just, this is a lesson. Whereas X-Men is a show that there's the morality is baked into part the storytelling so that it feels organic rather than just a thing to teach kids. Yes. You know? <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah, like tolerance and acceptance and love and, you know, the fact that we're all in this together and it doesn't matter what color or race or nationality or gender you are, that, you know, we all have to accept each other for who we are, you know? And uh, live and let live and let's do it together. What a, what a happier world it will be. Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to ask you, obviously you remember your line, some of your lines from Rogue because you've been giving them to me. Yeah. Do you have like a favorite line, like a thing that you're like, oh yeah, I just loved it when she said that. It stuck with you. Uh, I've got a few of them, but uh, you look about as nervous as a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. <laughs> I use that from time to time. That is a great one. Yeah. Yeah. And then just finally, I know you can't say much and you've given us a little bit about rogues. You know, the, you're going to be able to use some of your emotion, your own emotional journey to play rogue. Is there anything you feel like you can tell us to get us hyped up for X-Men 97 coming next year? Better buckle up your seatbelts because we're in for a bumpy ride. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Betty Davis. That's a Betty Davis line. Oh, it's nice though, but it seems, it sounds like something that a rogue would say too. So I think that it it, works. I think think Betty Davis said it in All About Eve. Mm. Movie All About Eve. Better buckle up your seatbelts. We're in for a bumpy ride. (laughs) You're going to love it. You just hold on to your hats. Here we come. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely hyped for it. And hopefully everyone listening to this is hyped for it too. And yeah, I thank you so much. It was great meeting you, Lenore, and thank you for coming on the show. But our, uh, our time is running out here. The one thing that I wanted to say just before you leave, if there's anything that you want to plug, I mean, you've already talked about the movie that you're making, but if there's anything else that you wanted to put out there, whether it's in your political work or, you know, like a show or something that you're doing, please let us know. Well, just keep an eye out for uh, my album, which will be coming out. It's called Strong Enough. Based on the, it's based on the, the name of the song that Sheryl Crow did, Strong Enough. Are you strong enough to be my man? And my little niece, when I played her some of the songs that I was working on, that was the one she picked that she thought that that should be the name of the album, Strong Enough. All right. That's cool. So it's for her. So keep an eye out for the album. And I'm on Twitter at Zan Lenore. And I'm on Instagram at Lenore Zan and Facebook 
Lenore Zan. And so follow me and watch and I'll, I'll be telling people as much as I can about everything all the way along. And so, uh, yeah, we're in this together. Take it easy and be kind to one another. All right. And thank you again for coming on the show, Lenore. Take care. Thanks so much. It's great to meet you. It's nice meeting you too. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2021. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.